and the powers want to destroy it. So what I suggested yesterday is we've just come um, through Lent in our church, the journey from Ash Wednesday to Resurrection Sunday, the 40 days there, where some of us give up Dr. Pepper and other really sacrificial things. Um, but we, when you live in the Passion Week of Lent, for us it was Mark 14, 15, and 16, the Judas-Peter contrast becomes the case study for this. Judas was deceived. Judas was divided, and then he was destroyed. He took his own life. Peter was on that cycle until the resurrection interrupted that cycle, and Jesus stepped in and said, there's only one thing more powerful than the powers in the world, and that's the Son of God raised from the dead. So when Jesus is cooking breakfast, this is not a Sunday Night Hallmark movie. This is a moment where Jesus is saying, there's only one thing that really matters. And that is the power that was unleashed in the resurrection has the power to reconcile you to the mission of God, not your worst moments, right? You're not defined by your worst moments and your deepest embarrassments, Peter's betrayal. So I challenge you to think about in your own relationships with your sons or your daughters or your grandchildren or your grandparents or your parents, where we see division and disruption and tension I challenge you to think about how are the powers working in your relationships and what is your responsibility um, in all of those things. Um, so what I want to suggest for a few minutes, and for those of you who came in a little bit late, I, I made a disclaimer that I have a 1240 flight at LAX, so when I'm done, I am not trying to be rude to anybody, but I'm walking out. I parked at the bottom of the hill. Uh, I do not want to miss my flight. So show, show me grace for that. But what I want to do for just a few minutes uh, is to talk practically about, um, I'm a local church person. Like that's, that's what my heart beats for. Um, I love conferences like this, but I love the local church. I love the messiness of it. I love the personalities. I love the drama most of the time. Um, <laughs> And so what I want to suggest is just over the last 15 years of what I've observed with the people that I think are doing this well. The people who I think are aware of how evil works in the world, in their own lives, how it works in churches, and what these women and men have in common. Um, and the first thing that I've noticed in these people that I want to emulate in the local church um, is a genuine sense of humility. And I think back to the political conversation I raised yesterday about um, how the powers work within our political system right now. Um, and both parties are equally culpable. And if, if I can't get you to agree on that, it's really hard to have any kind of conversation. But both parties are equally culpable. Um, the problem, the way Christians are engaging politics right now is there is zero humility. Genuine humility. It's us versus them. It's what color is your jersey? What jersey am I wearing? It's my team versus your team. My team's always right or mostly right. Your team's always wrong or mostly wrong. And there's very, very little room for confession. You can't win a primary if you have a confessional posture. <laughs> Think about that, right? The whole system right now is set up for the craziest people to win the primary. And that's a challenge for Christians to think about how we engage that process. Um, what I've noticed with confession, um, I think there is a direct correlation 
between people who regularly confess their own stuff and freedom. And freedom is something that you know it when you see it, but you don't know how to define it. When you're with somebody who is free, there is something intrinsically within you that says, I want that. And I don't even know exactly what that is, but that person is released uh, from the bondage of carrying secrets and shame. Shame for the things that they've done. Shame for the things that have been done to them, as Sarah beautifully articulated last night. Um, but there's a direct correlation. When I was first starting off in ministry, um, I was working in campus ministry. And the most powerful thing about campus ministry is accountability. And it's interesting, the older we get, the less we think we need that. Like, no, that's what our students need. <laughs> that's what our young adults need. Um, I'm still connected to the 20, 21-year-old, um, at that time, the 20, 20-year-old men who were in an accountability group. Partly because we all have a lot of dirt on each other, so we got to keep, you know, got to keep them closer. Um, but part of it is, it's the Bonhoeffer idea of when we discuss our virtues and our success, we're competitors. But when we confess our sins, we're brothers and sisters. And I have noticed, particularly around people who have um, been very successful, have had a lot of power and influence. That confession is not a natural reflex. If you even think about our worship liturgy, and I don't care if you come from a conservative church of Christ or a progressive church of Christ or an acapella, for instance, I don't even care about all that. But if you just think about the liturgy, how many Sundays per year is confession part of the actual worship time? Mm -hmm. there's, there's some working of ego and pride in that. And I even know the Sundays that we do uh, make sure that confession is part of the liturgy. I can feel, I don't have a lot of gifts, but one of my gifts is to feel a room. I can feel people uncomfortable with acknowledging the depths of our depravity. And I think that's about ego. I think that's about pride. And so the powers, the powers feast in a culture of ego and pride. Entitlement, right? As Sarah pointed out last night, Matt Lauer being able to have a lock installed on the back of his door that he could trigger from the bottom of his desk. That's, that's what we're talking about. There is a lack of humility, a lack of self-awareness of what we're all capable of. In the right circumstances, all of us are capable of far more evil and far more good than we give ourselves credit for. Um, so let me say something about how this works in my life. And it's a little bit tricky in my role, because I've been around some preachers who every Sunday is confession, and that's not healthy. Because <laughs> then you've just made it about you, right? Um, there's a way to be confessional in your life without having to confess everything to everyone all the time. Um, so my basic rules are, uh, uh, my college basketball coach used to call this the foxhole test. Meaning, when life really gets hard, who do you absolutely know is going to be in the foxhole with you? Yeah. Um, I, I call this the 2 a.m. rule. If, if something happened at 2 a.m. in the morning, who are the five people you know you can call? And, and they'll be there if, if their phone is turned on. <laughs> Give them a little bit of grace, right? Um, 
but you don't have to be confessional to everyone all the time. That's uh, that's that's called leaking. But if you do have an inner circle, um, and I, I'm kind of old school on this. I think women need women. I think men need men. Occasionally, you can cross that. Um, but there is a direct correlation between the people that I've seen thrive over the long haul in serving the church and confession. I've believed for a long time the most important thing for men in terms of their commitment to their marriage and raising their children is their relationships to other men. And I've been a man my whole life, so I would not dare to speak about how that works for in women's lives. But like for instance, um, I mentioned this yesterday, somebody very close to my family went through a terrible divorce 20 years ago. Um, and I wish no ill will on anybody in this situation, but the bottom line is, as soon as the man in this relationship started to separate himself from the other Jesus men in his life, he was vulnerable. He was deceived, he was divided, and then he destroyed his relationship with his only daughter. And, and he's never repaired it since, and she's 21 years old. Um, and it's because he cut himself off from his brothers. And, and he would even say to this day, he knew that that's what was happening. But he felt powerless to repair it once he had gotten so far into the damage of, of the choices he had made. So there's a direct correlation between a posture, confession, um, and accountability that produces humility. So I would just challenge you to think about who are you confessing to in your life? And for those of you who are married, um, this, this may feel a little bit controversial, but I don't think my wife needs to know everything that I think about. I, I think that's putting rocks in her backpack that she's not supposed to carry. Now, it, it's, it's delicate, right? Um, because I, I think she needs to know a lot of the stuff that I think about. But I, I think, I've been around some people when they get married, they think that marriage is simply you just telling your spouse everything you've ever thought. <laughs> and, and I think that's asking someone to carry something that they weren't intended to carry. There are certain things that I think about and worry about that I share with, in my life, it's the Josh Rosses, it's the Jonathan Stormitz, it's the Rick Ashley's, it's the Chris Edmonds, um, because they're much more wired to be able to carry some of those things than my wife is. And a loving thing for me to learn is what can my wife carry and what can she not carry at this stage? Because she's raising three, we're raising three boys, but she's, you know, she's, in terms of hours, she's more invested in that than I am right now just because of how daily schedules work. So if I call her at 2 p.m. to tell her about an elder, that I want to smite in the spirit of the Psalms. <laughs> that's not fair to her. That, that's not fair to ask her to carry that. But I can call Chris because he has also prayed that prayer to smite, to smoke. <laughs> um, so there's discernment in confession that's really important. Uh, one of my best friends right now uh, in our church is. Um, one of the most successful entrepreneurs that I've ever been around. And the entire time he was building his business and by the age of 40 became a millionaire, he was also hiding an alcohol addiction and none of us knew. And he's one of my best friends. And he, was a, he is a model in our church of leadership 
and he was the head of our deacon, deaconess group, our, our we call it ministry coordinator. And he called me one day, I'll never forget, I was driving down Franklin Road, and he just, we've traveled the world, we've been to Israel together, we've been all over, and, and I had no idea. Five years later, I'm sorry, four years later, he's been sober for four years, and he is a spiritual powerhouse. And he's the most confessional. He's so confessional when you're around him, you want to go confess stuff to other people. <laughs> and there aren't a lot of people who bring that out to me, right? There just aren't a lot of people, but that's what I've learned from him, is there is freedom in confessing. Your fears, your doubts, your anxieties, your concerns, your judgment, your resentment, that's a big one to learn how to confess. So I think that's the first discipline I've learned that pushes the powers of evil back and doesn't allow the powers to control our heart. Um, the other one, uh, another one that's very basic for me is the discipline of gratitude. Um, one of my favorite illustrations of this, uh, I have a dear friend at Otter Creek who went through a horrible divorce five years ago. It was one of those... Um, and she would say she was culpable in the, the status of their marriage. It really does take two to destroy marriage. So she owns that. But she woke up one day and found out that her husband has had an affair with her best friend. It was one of those just, they were in a life group together. Just the worst possible scenario. And she came to my office one afternoon and just cried for two hours. I mean, just cried and cried and cried for two hours. And she said, what do I do? Now, there is no training in the world that prepares you to help someone. There's just no handbook, right? And, and you can call it the spirit, you can call it intuition, but the only thing I could think to say in that moment is when you go home tonight and you put your kids to bed, go on your back porch, pour yourself a glass of water or a glass of wine, whatever it is that helps you relax, and make a list of all the things that you're still thankful for. And even when I was saying it, I was like, this is so weird. I can't believe this is you. <laughs> and she was just, because she was so vulnerable, she was like, okay, okay. She called me the next day, and she said, I came up with 75 things that I've had before. And I said, okay, just read me your list. And it was beautiful. She said, socks. When your whole world has been turned inside out, you have to get back to the very basics of what it means to be alive and to be thankful to have your life, right? Three healthy kids, a warm bed to sleep in, money in the savings account. Like she just started listening, and I told her, I was like, you're gonna, you're gonna be able to do this. They were divorced within six months. Um, she has since remarried, he, her ex-husband remarried. And she will say to this day, that one of the most helpful things that happened in the first 72 hours of her finding out is that she kept focused on what was still beautiful. And this is how the powers deceive us. When we get disappointed and we go through depression or we feel like we're not recognized or appreciated, the deception game is we lose sight of all that's good and beautiful in our lives. And even the people who have gone through the very worst of life I think, still have so much to be thankful for. And one of the great things about our Jewish Christian kind of narratives is that they always call us back to the goodness of God, the goodness of creation, the gift of being a human, 
The gift that we all woke up this morning, right? And all the things that have to happen right now in our bodies for us to be able to sit, be sitting in this room and listening and processing and thinking about, like, there's so much life just in this room right now. So much to be thankful for. Um, so, you know, uh, Ian Boskamp and other writers have done a great job with this, but even starting every week with just, what are, what are the things that I love about my life right now? The people that I love, the music that I love, the food that I love, um, the sermons that I love from other preachers, the stories that I love, the art that moves me. Just calling those things out of yourself and seeing there's far more good in the world than there is evil. There's far more hope in the world than there is despair. There's far more beauty um, than there is the work of the powers. That's a, that's a powerful discipline. Um, again, like with people who are confessional, I gravitate towards people who are joyful. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very fairly serious person, so when I'm around joyful people, I just want more of it. It's contagious to me. And I'm not talking about false joy of people who kind of put on airs and want you to think. I'm talking about genuinely joy. I'm not talking about people who chase happiness. Genuinely joyful people. And that is contagious. Um, another discipline that I think helps us push back the work of the powers in our lives is the discipline of risk. Brene Brown has been my teacher on this. So... If you don't hear anything else on this, just go read Brene Brown. But she calls it the art of vulnerability. And I would just challenge the men in this room. I think there's, there are very few things in the church more compelling than a, than a man who's willing to be vulnerable. Than a man who's willing to say, I actually don't have all the answers. Or a man who's willing to say, when you said that, that actually hurt my feelings. You have feelings? Yes, occasionally once a month I have this thing called, <laughs> called feelings. Um, I love it when men in our church volunteer in children's ministry. Because there's a vulnerability in that of uh, caring for a child, being responsible for the health and the well-being of a child. Um, so I think I think courage, I think risk is a spiritual discipline. And I think it calls out our better selves. Um, I've learned this practically with a conflict. One of the things about our, our particular church in Nashville is I always tell people what we lack in ethnic diversity right now, we make up for intellectual diversity. So we have people who still read the Left Behind series. God bless them. Um, and we have people who think Richard Rohr is the gospel and actually understand what, what Richard Rohr means. <laughs> God bless them too, because I only understand Rohr like every 20% of the time. Um, and, and they're all sitting on the same pews together. Receiving communion together. You know, we've got Feel the Burn supporters and we've got Trump supporters. Um, and the horrible thing about social media is we, you could kind of keep that a secret before, and now Facebook has ruined that, right? <laughs> I love Randy Harris's line of uh, the only thing holding some churches together is a lack of communication. I missed that yesterday. Um, and now that we're communicating, it actually is causing more splits. <laughs> but there is a certain vulnerability to going to someone and saying, hey, that thing you wrote on Facebook, like, tell me how that's the kingdom of God. It's easy to other them, right? It's easy to say, 
What an idiot. Or I, I knew that because I know the family he was raised in. Or she's such a liberal. She has no idea how this country was founded. Or he's such a conservative Tea Party. You couldn't have. It's easy to other and to resent. But there's a certain risk that's required in growing as a human to be vulnerable, to go to someone and say, when you told that joke at the dinner the other night, I don't think you would have told that joke in any other context. Um, when I challenge men, I call this uh, the how do you talk when you're playing golf with your friends? Because I think that's where you find out what's really in men's hearts. When they're hunting or fishing or playing golf. There's a certain vulnerability to say, I, I don't think that you realize when you said what you said, what was all going on there. And that's a certain risk. That there's a certain vulnerability in that. Um, and it requires a lot of work. It requires listening. Um, it requires an openness. It requires a, hey, tell me more. When you said, did you mean? Um, it's just a harder path. But the people that I've been around who I think that's the kind of Christian I want to be, they are willing to be vulnerable, consistent. And so I want to do that. Um, and then the last discipline I would encourage us to think about when it comes to how do we push back the darkness in our lives? How do we push back the powers of evil? Is a better way to say it. Um, is the discipline of hope. Okay, let me do a little theology for a second. I don't care what the issue is. Gender equality, LGBTQIA conversations, poverty, child literacy. I don't care what the social issue is or what the thing is. The one thing that I think we've got to do better in our churches is we base too much of our theology on the past. We have very little imagination for doing theology based on what heaven's going to look like. The New Testament is it's not a terribly nostalgic document. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but American culture, especially white American culture, is very nostalgic. Like the whole idea of uh, uh, if we could just get back to the golden era. Exactly when was that? And for whom, right? That's just a basic question. But the New Testament, at least as I read Paul and Jesus, all of their ethics was based on the new heavens and the new earth. This is what the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like. So we got to get busy looking like this now. Because the point is, we're going to look like the new heavens and the new earth at some point. We can either start doing it now, or we can start doing it later. That's what Paul meant in Philippians 2 when he says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You're going to do it at some point. So you may as well just get used to doing it now. Right? So the church is rehearsing for heaven. The church is auditioning the new heavens and the new earth for the world. We're showing the world where the world is going. Um, and we're stuck in still like only thinking about the early church or only thinking about how do we interpret Genesis, which we have to do. But we have very little imagination for talking about gender roles as it relates to the new heavens and the new earth. Do you really think in the new heavens and the new earth we're going to have these power struggles between gender and races? Not according to Revelation. Right? Every tongue, tribe, ethnicity, gender, all of it in the full presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what Revelation calls the banquet feast of the Lamb. It's not church forever. It's a giant feast party celebration. It's not a 60 million hour church service with multiple speaker after multiple speaker. Praise God. 
so hope, the discipline of hope, is simply this. Learning to see the future like God sees the future. Learning to be able to see what it means in Isaiah when the child and the serpent, when the wolf and the lamb, those eschatological, those moments in Jesus' life where he says, you want to know what heaven's going to be like? It's going to be like this. And then he starts to subvert. And what's he doing? He's not asking you to look nostalgically to the past, to the good old days, or leave it to be as much as I love it, right? He's saying, can you see the future that's coming? And that's a discipline of training our eyes to see the future like God sees it. And then when we catch glimpses of it, to tell people that's what it is. That's the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. For, for me last night, Sarah's sermon was a glimpse, was a hint. This is what it looks like when the word of God is unleashed in a group of people. Something happened in the room last night that doesn't happen very often. And I would say, that's the coming kingdom of God. Truth was spoken in a gracious, hopeful way. The kingdom of God. And so when we see it, we tell our children, that's the kingdom of God. When you see it in a movie, right? When you see it in a television show, when you see it in art, when you hear it in music, my three-year-old is obsessed with Bob Dylan right now. I can't figure it out because I don't understand Bob Dylan, what he's saying at the time. i got to scroll the lyrics on Wikipedia. <laughs> but when there are certain songs I can say to my three-year-old who's about to turn four, like, that's the new heavens and the new earth, as Bob Dylan was trying to express it. And that's our task, is to be so rooted and so trained in hope that we see it and we name it for what it is. The new heavens and the new earth. Let me pray over you, and then I'm going to head to LA. God, we pray to you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, truly, thank you for all the men and women in this room. Um, all of us could be doing so many different things right now at our time in this beautiful city, on this amazing campus. So I thank you, God, that you have brought women and men together on this campus again to dream about the kingdom of God. God, help us to have a global picture of Christianity, even though we know some of our churches are struggling. God, help us to have a big picture of what you are doing in Nairobi, Kenya, mm -hmm. what you are doing in Novo Sabir, Siberia, what you are doing in Kingston, Jamaica, what you are doing in Rochester Hills, Michigan, what you are doing in Malibu, California. Help us to be able to rise above our petty little places and divisions and to see your kingdom is flourishing, it's alive, it's well, it's beautiful, and it is power. And God, we, we join Jesus in his prayer that the things of heaven would become true of the things of earth, and that the principalities and powers of darkness would be forever defeated and destroyed and exposed for what they are. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name, and the whole church together. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.